Well, last week we started the book of Hebrews. Uh, we did verses 1 through 4, and we got halfway through the message, and I guess I got too excited, because now you get part 2 of what was supposed to be 1. I made something that might help you follow along if you are a visual person. Excellent. If you're a visual person and like to color uh, or take notes, this might help. They're on the back table. Um, it's I'm artistic and I'm very visual, so uh, as you can tell, paintings and stuff on the wall and, and whatnot. Um, I'm a very artistic kind of visual person, and this helps me to think about what the text says and how it says. So if that's helpful to you, please grab one. If not, don't worry about it. If you feel like you don't want to color, you're an adult. You're good. Um, let's, let's, Putting it on the fridge. Yeah, put it on the fridge. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's read it together and dive right in where we left off. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, just to recap, last week we mentioned that uh, this is the last days. What the author of Hebrews is signifying there is that this is the completion. Jesus Christ is the end. He's the end game. He's the goal. He's the end of God's, uh, I guess, dispensation of himself and revelation of himself to man. He is the completion, the culmination of it. The emphasis in this text is on Jesus. It's on Jesus, not on us. These are the last days in that Jesus, God has been fully revealed in Jesus Christ. You get to know God. Just let that sink in for a minute. Not only do you get to know God, but you get to know Him because He showed up and said, look at me. He actually gave you face-to-face with Jesus. You get to know the full character of God in Jesus Christ. This is something that's been hidden for ages past. It's been hinted at. It's been revealed in small ways. The prophets revealed these truths. Abraham waited for a Messiah to come. The Jewish people throughout the Old Testament are waiting for the Messiah King to show up. This is God showing up and giving Himself to you. These are the last days. This is His revelation. Now, long ago, before now, He revealed Himself in many different 
methods and in many different times he revealed himself. We see at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We talked about that some last week. Uh, but now the last days he has spoken to us by Jesus. Now, that should get you caught up from last week. Spoke to us by Jesus. God speaks to his people by the word Jesus. And he speaks to us with the king of life living inside us through his Holy Spirit and receiving that word. And then we are to act as agents of that word on this earth, blessing the earth around us. Remember the three circles God speaks by his word to his people who are uh, led by an indwelling spirit who is their king, Jesus. And by him we bless the nations, right? By him, by giving the nations Jesus. We bless them. You got the circles. Okay. So this morning we want to see who is Jesus. And first, Jesus is God's Son. Now this doesn't make sense in our head because God is a being with no beginning and no end. He is the only being. You understand? We're not, we technically cannot really call ourselves human beings. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. You cannot technically call yourself a human being. You are a human becoming. Because you're constantly in a state of change. Being implies that you are consistent and static as who you are. The only one who is consistent and unchanging is God himself. Everything that is created is therefore subject to a start and an end. But Jesus is not created. So, as an ancient Near Eastern uh, philosopher or biblical philosopher or theologian, how do we communicate to ourselves this truth that Jesus is not created and he is God, but at the same time he is born? So he is God without beginning and without end. And yet he shows up at an appointed time on the earth in the form of a baby. A son, born of God. So, there's three issues to deal with here. The first one is, he's not created. He's not a created being. He is God himself. In John 1, it talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He's been there since the beginning, since before the beginning. He's been there. He was not created. He does not have a start. The first thing to deal with. He's uncreated. He's not created. He is a, uh, he is always. He just is. In fact, when the Pharisees are arguing with him, he frustrates the mess out of them by saying, before Abraham was, I, give it to me. I am. Most frustrating grammatical term ever. What's your name? I be. That's what God tells Moses. Who do I say sent me? 
I be. I just, I exist. I am. This is the way we translate it, because I be is improper grammar. But the Hebrew, it's I be. Right? Jesus responds to the Pharisees with, for Abraham was, I am. So, we see God, Jesus, is not created. Second, the second issue that we need to deal with is he is son. And what does that entail? This is a this is an anthropomorphism for our benefit. This is God describing himself in human terms for our benefit. Jesus is son. He's not creature. What it means here is he's not creature. He's not creation. He is son, meaning he bears the same essence as the father. So there's all kinds of analogies for the Trinity, right? You've got water, it's an ice form, steam form, water form. None of them are adequate. You've got love. Augustine talked about the three kinds of love that you have. Um, Jerome talked about uh, breath as the Trinity. Um, there's all kinds of analogies. The, the one that uh, is easiest for me to grasp but I want you to understand, analogies to try and describe God are never thorough enough. They're never adequate. So I'm going I'm to throw this analogy out there, and I want you to realize if you overthink an analogy, it doesn't work. So this is to be surface level thought of, just to help you grasp something. I took a candle, and I lit it. I put it on the table. I took two more candles, and I lit them from the same flame, and I put them on the table. And I asked my kids, are these the same fire? Not are they the same flame, are these the same fire? There's three of them on the table, are these the same fire? Right, got all three. My kids argue for good 30 minutes about everything. And then one of them finally says, same fire, but it's three different flames. Then I held all three together. How about now? Same fire, same flame. Because if you put the fire together, it makes one flame. But there are three different flames, same fire. That helps a little in grasping what it means that Jesus is God's Son. He is distinctly different from God the Father. And he is distinctly different from God the Spirit. But they are the same. They are, the way Jesus puts it, is they are one. Now, if you ever grasp that in fullness, write a book and give it to me. It will take at least a book to cover that. In fact, I, I took an entire course in seminary where we started with the question, what is the Trinity? And at the end, we ended with the answer, what is the Trinity? It's difficult. But he is son. He bears the same essence as God. He's not created. He's God. He's son. And the third issue to deal with when it says that he is God's son is recognizing the authority and power that that gives Jesus. Being the son of the creator. So, I was the son, I am the son, of a rather prominent doctor 
he passed away. That's why I used the term was. But he's he's he was a very prominent doctor. And when I was in college, I was told if you just take your MCAT, which is the medical entrance exam, I could have my pick of the majority of medical schools simply because of my name. Because I was Thomas Elkins' son. And they knew, most, most people knew, if I decided to be a doctor, then they would go ahead and take care of that. I would be a doctor. Now, I obviously didn't take that route, just so you are aware, in case you're confused. I'm not a medical doctor. So I was told if I wanted to, I could take uh, the MCAT. Now, I could take the MCAT and go to whatever school would take me, and they'd take me. The uh, power and authority that that gave me when I would go to talk to other doctors about whatever was kind of miraculous. After my dad passed away, my brothers and I went to Johns Hopkins and walked down the hall from my dad's office and knocked on the door of the most prominent neurosurgeon in the world, Ben Carson. And we sat across from him at his desk and had casual conversation for about two hours because of my dad's name. Now, if that's the kind of authority I could exert as a 15-year-old kid because of my dad's name, I want you to think about what that means for Jesus. God hangs the earth on nothing, is what the Bible says. He keeps the stars and the moon and their rotation. He tells the valleys to go this far down and the mountains to rise, the seas to come this far and no further. He controls the tides. And Jesus is his son. He tells the Leviathan to lay down and take a nap. He tells the, the behemoth to come here and let him pet him. He controls the whirlwind. Storms don't come without God's mighty hand. And Jesus is his son. And he speaks on his behalf. The only thing to rebel against Jesus, the only thing to rebel against Jesus and survive rebelling against Jesus, is us. And we will not survive forever. Indeed, the Bible, Jesus tells a parable about uh, a master who sends a messenger to his tenant to collect on the bills, and the tenant kills the messenger. So the master sends another one, and they kill that messenger. And finally, the messenger, the master sends his son, and they kill the son. And Jesus looks at them and says, what do you think will happen? What do you think will happen? Indeed, we have a gracious God who has forgiven. When we have killed his son, and he has forgiven. But judgment has landed. And execution of that judgment has been stayed for a time. So we plead with the people around us to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. 
that they would be saved. That they would be saved. So he is the son through whom, uh, or he's the son here whom he appointed, God appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of everything. He is the king. He's going to inherit everything. He has inherited, indeed, all things. The earth is the Lord and everything in it belongs to him. Psalm 24. The earth is his footstool. This is his. And Jesus owns it all. So next time you're mad about not having something, or that somebody else has something that you think is yours, remind yourself that everything here, including you, belongs to Jesus. He is the heir of all things. He is the Son of God. Second thing to note, through whom, through Jesus, also God created the world. Jesus is the agent of creation. John 1.1 1, 1 puts it this way. He is the Word, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Him and by Him, and nothing that has been created was created without Him. He is the creator of the world. He has created all things. Indeed, he holds all things together as the creator. Just fathom that for a second. Think about that for a moment. That God holds all things together right now. Your molecules are literally being held together by God. Just what... That's insane. All the stuff going on in the world and you are kept from floating off into non-existence by God's hand. That's crazy. I can't hold together my own thoughts. Much less everybody's molecules at once. This is why. He is the creator who holds all things together. He is the maker of the world. So let's think about that for a minute. If Jesus is the creator and we follow him, then it, 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 it seems logical to think about the things that we encounter on this earth being things that he has designed. The, the trees outside that you see the wind that blows through your hair. The very grass beneath your feet are His design. When the ground is too hot, it's His design. When the ground is cool under your feet, it's His design. When the sun is burning down, exhausting you, it's His design. When the sun is warming a cold frame. It's His design. When you go outside at night and see the glorious stars, it's His design. When you see the moon, which we just read, shines more fair than the sun because it shines in the dark, it's His design. When the sun is out and you are privileged to see. It's His design. Think about that for just a minute and then think about how generous and kind Jesus 
has been in his creation to you. Indeed, he is not only creation, creator who created once, but he is creator who continually, actively engages his creation. Jesus is not passive. He is active. And he is working now for his glory and his name to be made known. Just think about that for a minute. What does that mean? That Jesus is actively working now in creation. It means he's not done. He's not done. Indeed, in Revelation, at the end of the book, it says, Behold, I am making all things new. Present tense active. The end of the book, he is making all things new. He is continuing to make. We read it this way. We read it this way in Revelation 21, verse 8. It says, um, it says, it, it says, and now it is finished. Right? I'm going to read it. <laughs> Revelation 21, behold, verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And here's what I was getting at. Verse 6, it says, and he said to me, it is done. Some translations read, it is finished. Here's the problem with those translations. The word done or finished there is the word born. In other words, it's God saying, I'm just getting started. Heaven is not a place where God goes, all right, we're going to sing the same worship song for 5,000 years and we'll be finished. Everybody get your harps out. That's not... Heaven. Heaven is the place where earth and heaven at the end of time are made one and all of a sudden the creativity of God is set loose. And he begins to create all the more. You think this creation is amazing. The Bible calls this a shadow. It's not even the fullness of God's creative ability. And he continues to create, continues to work. So if Jesus is the consummate creator of all things, the one who continuously creates, infinitely creative, if Jesus is this, then just think about what he can do in your heart and your soul. If he creates all of this, and he's not done, and he's still working, just think about what he can do in you. Now, third, here, back in Hebrews, it says, he is, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, there was a problem at the beginning of time. God created man and woman in his own image. He created them together, and they were the image of God. Man is made in his image. Right? He's made in his image, and he was supposed to reflect that image and be a uh, representation of God's glory on the earth. And God makes man and sets him in a garden and then tells him, cultivate the garden, spread out. And where does man go? Right to the middle. And what does he do? He disobeys. Yay! Everything goes downhill from there. By the way, just in case you've never read the Bible, Genesis 3, 
they eat the fruit, everything goes downhill until Matthew 1, right? Then it comes back up, right? So Jesus uh, is promised in Genesis 3.15, right away they fall, uh, they rebel against God, and Jesus is promised right away. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between your offspring, he's talking to the woman, I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the serpent, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. This means that sin will be defeated by a man born of a woman. Jesus. Man born of a woman crushes the head of the snake. The snake bruises his heel and he crushes the snake's head. Beautiful, incredible picture of salvation. Now, that image of God that was made in the garden was permanently marred or distorted by sin. Jesus is the exact imprint of that image. He is what we call in Romans the second Adam. Adam was the first Adam. Adam fails. Second Adam, Jesus, comes bearing the likeness of Adam, the same likeness of God, and this time does not fall. This Adam is perfect and does not fall and bears the sins of the world on his shoulders. He is the exact imprint of God, the very radiance of God's glory. Now, glory, I want you to learn this definition. Glory is defined as the accurate representation of that which is real. The accurate representation of that which is real. The accurate representation of that which is real. To put it this way, the glory of a frog is that it's slimy, wet, and hops. The glory of a man is that he's sinful and he rejects God. The glory of God is Jesus. The glory of God is Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Get as close to you can as Jesus. Get as close as you can to Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Get as close as you can to Jesus. He is the exact imprint, the radiance of God. Now, for a moment, think about what that means. If Jesus is the radiance of God, He is the exact imprint, He's the image of God, then that means that the things we see about Jesus are true about God the Father. The things we see about Jesus and the heart of Jesus are true about God. Now, we live in a culture that tries to divide Old Testament God from New Testament God. This is one of the arguments that's made against Jesus. Jesus is very different than the Old Testament God. And the answer is no, he is not. No, he is not. He is the full revelation of the Old Testament God. If you want to understand the Old Testament, view it with the lens of Jesus Christ. Look at this ridiculously patient God who waits hundreds of years for people to repent, and they don't. This incredibly patient, loving God who calls to His people, calls to His people, calls to His people, and they never come. And He continues to call to them until finally He goes, I'm just going to get you and you'll be mine. I'm not letting you go. This God that Paul says doesn't even have to pour out wrath, 
but rather removes his restraining hand from the consequences of sin. That's how consequences and wrath hit us, by the way. We sin, and God just removes his hand and lets the consequences come. That's Romans chapter 1. He doesn't lay it on us. He doesn't yell at us. He doesn't grab us and shake us. No, he gently calls and woos and calls and draws and brings and constantly continues to do it while we're running the other direction. And then finally he grabs us and holds us close and pulls us back and says, you're mine. I love you. You can't run away. There's an old uh, children's book that I read to my kids and that my mom read to me and that her mom read to her. And it's this story of a rabbit and her little baby rabbit, Bunny, who's, what What do you call a baby rabbit? Bunny? Is it Bunny a rabbit? Okay. Baby, Bunny, and a rabbit. And the baby Bunny says, I hate it here, I'm going to run away. And he gets his little stick and knapsack and puts it over his shoulder. And the next picture is, I'm going to become, and he makes some, I'm going to become a, a mountain, I'm going to become a mountain climber, and I'm going to climb the highest mountain to get away from you. And the mommy says, if you become a mountain climber to climb the highest mountain, I will become the mountain that you climb so I can be ever near you. He says, I'm going to become, I'm going to go get on a boat and I'm going to sail and I'm going to become a sailboat and I'm going to blow, I'm going to float out to sea and I'm going to, I'm going to sail away. And the mommy says, if you become a sailboat, I will become the wind that blows you into my loving arm. And the, the bunny says again, I'm going to become a, a flower in a garden and I'm going to hide in the, in the deepest garden I can find. She says, if you become a flower in a garden, I will become the gardener who will tend to you and take care of you and love you. The argument goes back and forth with multiple, it's adorable, the argument goes back and forth with multiple things, even at one point her becoming a fisherman to catch him as the fish in the stream so she can take him home and protect him. All these various things. And finally, the bunny is asleep. And that's the end of the book. And my kids have never gone to sleep after reading that book. But the book is still true. You want to know the heart of God? That's a great illustration. You live your life as it unfolds before you. And you will find that God is the mountain you're trying to climb. That he is the wind that is blowing you where you need to go. That he is the gardener who is cultivating your soul. That he is the one who is protecting you. That he is the one who has kept his arms around you all the time. This is the nature of our God. Jesus is the glory and the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And next, he upholds the universe. By the word of his power. I have to be honest, I don't know what to do with that. Jesus upholds the universe. Intellectually, I get it. Intellectually, I go, yeah, okay, I get the fact that the universe has stayed where it is because Jesus is gracious and he has done it and he sustains it. I get that. We've already talked about that. I understand that he's holding my molecules together. I get those things. I understand them intellectually. But personally, I just don't know what to do with the image of Jesus by his word, holding up the universe. Can you imagine? Just get an image of the stars. I don't know if you've ever looked at the stars, but if you just imagine a big spiral, 
and call that the universe, the Milky Way is like a little blurb. And we're less than a dot inside the Milky Way. And it says Jesus upholds that by the power of his word. Have you ever known somebody who has such a strong, authoritative voice and word that if he says something, it's done immediately? Maybe in some respects. Maybe in a job, you've had a boss that when he walked in the room, whatever he said, you did immediately. Maybe you had that. That, that idea, that image doesn't come close to the grand, inescapable, bizarre, incredible image that this is. This is the image of somebody who speaks something and it comes to be. Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word. That is crazy. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So next and final here, we have this picture of Jesus. He makes purification for sin. What is the chief thing that we know about Jesus, the number one way that we're introduced to him, and the one way that we can actually see God? It's this, that Jesus Christ the righteous came down to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, taking the sins of all who would believe in him on his shoulders, dying and then raising again, that they would in turn be free from sin and raised to walk a new life in Jesus Christ. That they would find their identity and their hope and their life in Jesus Christ. Indeed, that we would find our identity, our hope, and our life in Jesus Christ. If you don't know who you are, there is one surefire way to figure it out. Get as close as you can to the one who designed you. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You are defined by Him. Consider for a moment, Jesus made purification for sins. And then... Having made purification for sins, having rescued us from death, having risen to give us new life, he ascended into heaven where he sits now awaiting the day for himself to return and complete everything to rescue his bride for good. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This is the image of a king's court where the king sits down at the front. We talked about this some with uh, Jacob and Esau a couple weeks ago where Jacob is coming to Esau and he tries to manipulate like a vassal coming before a king, right? Like a man coming before Pharaoh. And he bows down seven times in front of Esau as he's coming before him showing perfect and total submission to Esau, which was common in the ancient Near East. It was a normal thing. And he walks in, and Esau is the one he's raising up like Pharaoh sitting on his throne. Now, when you had a king who had a 
a prince or a co-ruler, a co-authority. That king sat front and center, and at the right of the king was always the prince. And I want to say always on purpose, because this position of sitting down on the majesty by the majesty at the right hand of the majesty on high is an image not only of a throne room, but also of a table. The person who sits at the right of the king is the most important person in the room. And when you feast and eat, the person sitting at the right hand of the king is the most important person in the room. Hebrews had multiple ways to illustrate this. They would uh, give an honored dip to the, the guest of honor. They would give an honored sop to the guest of honor. They would uh, sit the person next to them. They would have the person reclining against them. They would address that person first. Now, I want you to think about the Last Supper for just a moment in closing as we think about the character and nature of Jesus. Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand of God. He's the most important person in the room. But when he sits with us, think about the way he shows love to those around him. John reclines on his shoulder at the meal. Peter is the only one to have a question addressed. The only one to say anything. And Judas is given the honored dip. You see, Christ looks at us and he says, you are fellow heirs with me. You are fellow heirs with me. He is the Son of God, the Creator, the glory, the exact radiance and imprint of God who upholds the the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins he sat down the right hand of majesty on on high sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and he has become as much superior to the angels which by the way is a generic title messenger he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus inherits the name. Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. That's his name. Right. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It ought to make you groan a little. Angels don't get names. In this passage, don't know if you noticed, Jesus is the only name that matters at all. 